This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? All too often, we humans are guilty of elevating ourselves and our own importance to the heights of godliness. I am guilty of it. In the short time this podcast has been in the works, I've found myself putting too much stock in the power with which I can craft my words. I'm doing it now, trying to sound convincing, to try to sound cunning. I want to sound like I know what I'm talking about. I am Arum. But the truth is, we are all lost. The moment we concern ourselves with our elevation is the very moment we are cast out. This very attitude of elevation, of ego, is the attitude of the spear, of Cain, the one who murdered the shepherd, whose only concern was to listen to God. We should be like him, like passing breath, like Abel whose short time on this earth was defined by his obedience and faith in God. The unfortunate truth is that we cannot be like Abel, and the story we will hear today should bore into our hearts that reality. Only by submitting to the scriptural God and following the shepherd, the obedient servant, the suffering servant, can we find rest. Rest that we should share with everyone, because again, we are all lost. The oasis is for all of God's children, and the moment we forget that, the moment our legacy will fade. Join us as we conclude Genesis chapter 4. We will start in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuyael, and Mahuyael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Tzela. Ada bore Javal, He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Juval. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Tzela also bore 
Tuval Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tuval Cain was Naama. So it's really important that we understand the purpose of lineages. The genealogies in the Bible are always meant to tell a story. The genealogy at the beginning of the book of Matthew tells a story and the meaning of every character's name, all leading up to the birth of the Messiah, it describes the character of the character. So it's not just a bunch of names. So this next section is a small genealogy, and not a toledot, but a lineage rather, or a dynasty maybe would be the most appropriate word, that is communicating what it is that Cain is doing immediately after his expulsion into the wilderness. Okay, so Cain and his wife have Enoch, which means to dedicate. And it makes sense because Cain then builds a city and also names it Enoch after his son. So we can see that Cain is dedicating his actions not to God, but to his lineage and the civilization he is building in his own image. Enoch fathers Irad, which comes from the word Arad, which is a Canaanite city and also a verb that means fugitive. Irad fathers Mahuyael, which means stricken one of God. Mahuyael fathers Methushael, which means man of God. And the word for man is the Hebrew mat, which often carries the connotation of a few men, as in a few men uh, in scarcity. So there were a lot of men, now we have few men. So one could argue that Methushael denotes a man of God when men of God are scarce. Building off of that idea, and what I think this text is ultimately alluding to, is that this is a man of a negative God, as in a little g God. So a man of a little g God. What is this type of man? Well... It's a temple priest, the priest of the local deity, not of Yahweh, but of the God that those people worship. Now, this might sound like pure conjecture, but stick with me for a minute, and I think you'll get the connection. Methushael fathers Lamech, which means, get this, nothing. Lamech doesn't mean anything. It's a made-up word, not connected to any root that we know of. Okay, so what are the implications of this? Well, We can see that so far the authors have been very literal with some things, but pretty vague with others, alluding to certain ideas without shoving it in the hearers' faces. We have also seen that the authors use a variety of classic literary devices, such as foreshadowing, poetry, rhyming schemes, clever manipulation of grammar, symbolism, etc. What we have here with Lamech is an anagram. An anagram is the rearranging of letters in a word to form a new word. Lamech is an anagram of the Hebrew word Melech, for king. This is corroborated by the fact that the vowel structure is identical from word to word. You can hear it. Lamech and Melech. So following this train of logic, let's just say that Lamech means king. Okay, so before we continue, let's just pause and break all of this down what we have so far using the meaning of the names opposed to the names themselves. Okay, so Cain, which remember means spear. Cain fathers dedicate. Dedicate 
father's fugitive. Fugitive fathers the stricken one of God. The stricken one of God fathers the man of God, the priest. The man of God, the priest, fathers the king. I understand this is a lot to keep track of, uh, so I'll be sure to include all of this in the show notes so you can read it for yourself. Okay, so moving on. So we then hear that Lamech took for himself two wives. How kingly of him, right? The first is Ada, which means to adorn or decorate oneself. And the second is Tzela, which means to shade or grow dark. It is indeed related to the word Salem, which means a shadowy image. Obviously, these are not positive indications. His two wives bore a total of three sons. All three of their names come from the Hebrew word Yaval, which means to lead the way or to guide. And we'll see why. Each of their names is a different form of the word Yaval, which allows the authors to ensure each character is identifiable within the story because if they all had the same names, it wouldn't work as well. So Ada, or the adornment, births Javal, who led the way for those who live in tents and have livestock. And she also births Juval, who led the way for the musicians. And let's say by extension, the arts, the cultural entertainment. And Tzela, or the growing darkness, births Tuval Cain. Tuvalcain is he who led the way of every craftsman of bronze and iron. The ESV translation is a little weird. It makes it sound like he makes like trumpets and flutes. That's not what it's saying at all. He is the one who leads the way of craftsmen of bronze and iron. In other words, he leads the way in making instruments of war. What is more is that his name has something that his brothers do not, and that is the addition of the name Cain which is an obvious hearkening back to their progenitor, or father, Cain. But remember, Cain isn't just a name. As we established at the outset of this chapter, Cain means spear. So Tuval Cain is literally he who led the way of the spear. He is the first war master. How much clearer can it be? Tuval Cain, he who leads the way of the spear, is the son of the king and the growing darkness. This entire genealogy is the story of the first human empire, and it is very obviously being painted negatively. One last note in this genealogy is that Selah also has a daughter called Naamah, which means delightful or passable in beauty, insofar as she is accepted because of her beauty. That's what I mean by that. This entire family is centered around the celebration of the human a king to be worshipped, sons who head the various aspects of metropolitan culture, such as raising cattle, music and entertainment, and war. And lastly, a princess who is made out to be an icon of physical, desirable, lustful beauty. This egocentrism is made even more clear in the closing dialogue of this passage spoken by Lamech. He says, Ada and Selah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. His arrogance is the focal point 
the authors are closing this dynasty story with a callback to the inciting sin committed by Cain. Not only are the hearers reminded of what started us on this path, but we are shown just how far we've fallen. Lamech is boasting about killing a man in revenge for striking him. He's claiming that if a man is to strike him, that since he is a descendant of Cain, the person who struck him should receive a striking not just sevenfold, but seventy-sevenfold, because he is so much more important than Cain. He is assuming the judgment seat of God himself in murdering whomever he desires and using what was God's seal of protection for his lost, wandering son, Cain, as a justification for his murderous tendencies. This is true calamity. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This section is incredibly powerful when we know the original Hebrew. First of all, it would behoove us to pay attention again to Eve's reaction, but this time to the reaction of her third son. Instead of having Cain as a possession to her, Seth is appointed to her as a gift, or a placement of Abel. As is the case with all Hebrew names, Seth is functional here in that it literally means to appoint, right? Big surprise. I mean, you're going to see this pattern quite often. Notice that it is God doing this action. It is God appointing Seth as a replacement for Abel so that the lineage of God's teaching will continue. We read on that to Seth, a son was born whose name was Enosh, which funny enough is another word for man. There sure are a lot of ways to say man in the Hebrew language. And this is really interesting because he sort of signifies a recreated man, a new Adam. It's another reset. The evil that was in Cain attempted to snuff out his shepherd brother, and therefore the lineage was in danger of being tainted. But God always has control and always divinely intervenes whenever such a break in the lineage occurs. This happens over and over again in the story, and we will see it come up very often. And we need to remember the distinction between the human lineage and God's lineage, because when we say God is protecting the lineage from being broken, what we're saying is he's protecting the continuation of his instruction, his teaching, his commandments on how to construct life and take care of each other. That's what he's protecting. He's not protecting the personality of Adam and Eve or uh, their characters uh, because it's his Torah that is the focal point of the entire biblical message. Right. And I think it's also important for us to mention how this introduction of Enosh segues us into chapter 5, which deals with the Toledot of Adam. So far, we have only heard about the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, which is really the Toledot, as Rowdy said, of God's revealing instruction, as demonstrated through his creative actions in the beginning of the story. But in chapter 5, the Toledot of the Torah is demonstrated through the lineage of Adam's descendants leading up to Noah, who was, like Adam, born out of the ground, 
but his role was to give rest to the world after the original Adam had cursed it. But we'll get into that next week. Related to that, though, is the very important detail that Cain is without a Toledot, even though he has a lineage. See, herein lies the difference. This gets into what Rowdy had just said. Cain's lineage eventually dies out. God doesn't protect it. It is Noah and his family who are the sole survivors of the flood and the repopulators of the world. Therefore, the story of the law does not progress through Cain, and Cain's family line is ironically a passing breath, just like the brother he killed and the death of which Cain feared what happened to himself. His entire genealogical line, the city that he built, his descendants, his sons, his dedicated son Enoch, it's all Hevel. It's all Abel. It's all a passing breath. Right? This is the difference. Lastly, I would like to touch upon the last sentence of this chapter, where we are told that it was at the time of Enosh's birth that man began to call upon the name of the Lord. I find this to be a deeply powerful statement because it shows the amount of distance that has been created between God and his people. Remember that back in the garden, man was with God in fellowship with him. God is casually walking around the garden, and man's relationship with him is very close. There's no need to call out his name because he's there. But man has become so distant that, like a wounded animal, he can only cry out for his owner. It reminds me of an unfortunate reality of prayer that many of us, including myself, are guilty of. It's a lot more likely for us to approach God and call upon his name when we are in some form of distress or suffering, for it is during those times where God seems the most distant. Everybody who's listening to this knows exactly what I'm talking about. But remember, always that it is not God who is distant, it's us. We have to approach him and allow ourselves to be approached by him like the myriad of the sick and suffering people in the Gospels who approach Jesus for healing. This is what seems to be going on here, and it's a sobering detail to think about how quickly it all went downhill. So when it says people began to call upon the name of the Lord, I hear desperation in that. Because there's a disconnect between man and God. That's the tragedy of the biblical story. But there is hope. And there is rest. As we will hear about when we continue our read of Genesis chapter 5. But until then, assalamu alaikum. God bless you all. Planted by the streams of